you are listening to the Freelancer Codex, a podcast brought to you by the Shut Up and Respawn Network. Welcome everyone to our special interview series that I like to call the Humans Make Games series. We are joined today by Alex Beddows. He's the Alex is the host of the Game Dev Discussion Podcast and the Senior Environment Artist at Counterplay Games currently. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Dude, thank you for having me on. I'm pleasure to be here. No, Alex, I, I was excited to have you on. I started listening to your podcast. Uh, I enjoy anything that talks about the game industry and, you know, just, just hearing the different perspectives, um, from all the different guests that you've had on your podcast has been super interesting. So any, for anyone that is, that is looking for that, can you, can you tell, um, our listeners where they can find that podcast or where they can download it? Yeah, so if you, uh, yeah, the game, it's called the Game Dev Discussion Podcast. Um, it's on all the major platforms if you search in Spotify, SoundCloud, uh, iTunes. Um, it's also, we're on the, I'm partnered with a learner community, the Dynasty Learner Community. So there's a YouTube channel, um, the Dynasty Empire, and there's all sorts of stuff on there. There's my podcast, uh, my, yeah, the guy who runs uh, the community, Jeremy Estrelado. He's the scene, he's now the lead environment artist at Ubisoft Massive. He, you know, streams himself learning software. Um, and we have a couple of other guys who are big Blender users who put out, put out a lot of like Blender tutorials. So, so if you're an environment artist, it's a great place to go for learning resource. And uh, YouTube channel is probably the best place to go just because there's so much stuff there. Very cool. Well, Alex, thanks again. Thanks for joining us. So looking at your work experience as I was uh, kind of looking at you and doing some research online, you've been, you've worked at a lot of game studios, doing a lot of contractor work. You were at Serious Game Studios, Mountain Wheel Games, the Inspired Gaming Group, Level 5 Gaming, Decagon, um, working at Art, State, Art Station right now during, uh, during some teaching on Art Station. Is that correct? Is that? Uh, kind of, I do, I do some courses. It's mainly the, so our station re, last year launched the learning platform, uh, where people, you know, we reach out to artists to create learning content and I manage that platform now. Oh, very cool. And then currently you are working at Counterplay Games and Counterplay is working on Godfall. And that, that's not something we're going to touch on a lot here in this podcast because there's a lot of things that they're not ready to say. So instead of me bugging you and saying, no, we can't talk about that, I think it'd be more interesting to talk about things that, that you are allowed to talk about and really talk about how you got into the industry. Cause I always think it's interesting how people first get started. So how did you, Alex, like, is there a moment in your childhood where you said, I'm going to work in the game industry and that's what I'm going to do? Um, so I, I suppose there's a, it's, it's got two major parts to it. Like growing up, I always knew I wanted to work in games. Um, I didn't know I wanted to work as a, an environment artist till like, I got, got to college. Like, grow, like there's a guy, I went to school with a guy called Callum and uh, I, he always used to bug me because I used to tell complete like bs stories like uh at the time predator, predator concrete jungle not long come out on the playstation 2 and uh we're we're in, we're in school and we're talking and i just start making up like oh yeah they're working on a sequel and i just designed this game like talking out my ass and he believed it and like you know like the next week i'll be like no i was joking i am true and he's like god damn it i actually got excited for that <laughs> so i've always been passionate about games um, i've always played games uh when i got to college so this is where like it diverges a little bit. I was playing, um, I was getting into professional sport. I was uh, playing rugby. Um, and there was like a point, there's two colleges in my city. One, which was a much better college for learning game art. Um, it was like more focused. The other, putting it politely, was a substandard teaching experience for a college. But 
it had a very, very good uh, rugby program. Um, and I, that was like my first sort of like, okay, I need to make a, sort of a decision here. So I ended up going to the one more um, dedicated to the, the game art and had a very bad experience. Um, I did, you know, even at university level and high level education, they struggle to have the funding to have good curriculums for game art. So you can imagine what it's like at a level down at colleges. Um, so, you know, most of us were self, we all pretty self-taught while we were there. Um, all the students taught themselves were competitive with each other. Um, and that's how we learned. Like one guy would make like a water shader and then, you know, I'd be like, Hey, I modeled this good. This is cool. And then like the next person would be like, yeah, but I've learned how to make fire, uh, VFX and yeah, we one up each other constantly. Um, so I left college. Uh, I stuck with rugby, uh, after having such a bad experience, I was kind of like, okay, I'll stick with rugby for a bit. Um, and for a couple of years, sort of I did well. I got into, you know, got good representative rugby. Um, but I got to the stage. I kind of knew like rugby wasn't paying great. You know, uh, uh, when you're in that, like sort of not quite superstar level, but you're at a professional level, it, the pay is really poor. So I was working full time as a bricklayer, um, whilst playing, you know, train, doing all the training for rugby and doing game art on the side, like trying to teach myself, um, game art. And so push come to shove, I was like, okay, I'm spreading myself too thin. Um, rugby really isn't going anywhere. It's not a long-term strategy. So I quit. Um, I went back to semi-professional. I started a serious game studio. Uh, funny enough, I actually, in, I was freelancing for the serious game studio while I was at college, um, just doing some like 3D assets. So reached out, asked if I needed like an artist and I joined, um, which although I didn't want to work in serious games, it was actually quite rewarding. So the, for those who don't know, Serious Games is basically using game technology to create learning and education tools, um, or, or should I say, using game technology for non-entertainment purposes. Um, so we, you know, we'd be in the Unreal Engine making like um, there was this like it was a, it was a point-and-click adventure game for the home, and it's basically to help uh, children with learning disabilities, like and gamifying them learning what is and isn't dangerous in a in a home. And these sorts of things were kind of like, okay, I didn't envision doing this when, you know, as a college, but it was very rewarding. Um, you know, it's compared to what, you know, most game art is making things to blow up and all that kind of stuff. Right. It was a very fulfilling process. Um, but yeah, that was, my, that was my first taste. And it, it was, uh, you know, I had to, I kind of had to BS my way into it a little bit because they're like, oh, so you're a 3D artist. That's cool. Like, do you know how to use Photoshop? Can you do like UI design? I was like, yeah, yeah, I know Photoshop. Barely opened it. I barely <laughs> knew it. I had to like frantically research um, like UI design and like how to use Photoshop and Illustrator and After Effects leading up to me going into the studio. So yeah, that was, that was my first taste of, that's my first foot in the door at Game Out. Well, it seems like a lot of the people that we talk to have a similar story to where it's kind of like fake it till you make it, get your foot in the door and then mm. go from there. And like, I guess Alex, like, why do you think that a lot of the end like you, you had this experience at college, you know, with substandard like curriculum. Do you think that's just people outside of the industry don't really know how to build a curriculum? Is it people just not understanding like what a person needs to enter the industry? Um, I think the, I mean, okay, I have my own thoughts anyway on the education system. I think it's quite archaic. You know, we when you look at what the modern day looks like in terms of work, and I'm not talking about the games industry, any industry. 
it's everything's fast moving everything is you have to pivot and come up with new ideas and technology is moving so quickly the the game the education system teaches you to absorb information and regurgitate it and it's like makes everyone a cut mold cookie cut out of each other and i just think it's that that's an archaic way of teaching anyway yeah um the games industry is like it's it kind of like an exaggerated version of why it's a problem i mean look how fast the game industry moves technology changes year to year software changes year to year um and i mean i've i've not gonna i've done a lot of university talks and i had one recently where they actually asked me they're like hey you mentioned pbr which for those don't know physical based rendering which has been around since 2008 2007 they're like hey you mentioned pbr do you think we should be teaching our students about pbr and i kind of like i thought he was joking i was like you you are teaching them right that that's literally been the workflow for the past like 15 years no we haven't really touched on it and these were second years and i was like oh my god this is a this is appalling um however some students some some universities do it better than others there's a lot of variability within the education system but all the guys i know who come out of university and like land their first jobs they're doing majority of stuff in their own time like you what i don't see and i've not seen to this day is somebody who just does their core hours of university does that through their through their education process finishes and then they walk into a job like it just doesn't happen everyone who gets their first jobs they have to put a lot of extra hours in just because there's so much to learn like um it, it's a very saturated market like i think the you know, numbers are something close to like if you have 150 students on the course only 10 of them will land a job wow that's how competitive it is and that's not even the good universities that's not even taking into consideration some of the ones which aren't so tailored to game art so with an industry so that we've all been thinking about together you know highly competitive industries moving a million miles an hour education systems can't keep up i think that's why we end up with this situation that we're in um but there's a lot like there's so much research compared to when i was getting into the industry there's so much stuff available now you have mentorships um youtube you know vast array of youtube content uh, flip normals our station learning podcasts all this stuff available to us and discord discord's been amazing for like learning communities i know it's a lot of my learning took place was on discord um with dynasty it's the tools are all there where you can't like blame the education systems yeah there's a lot of shoot i i i see a lot of people coming to the discords and they get you know very they're very upset and they're like oh screw my university they're teaching me this this and this and it's useless and i'm like uh yeah maybe it is but you've got all the tools available at your fingertips to teach what you need to know like rather than sit there and blame the universities make a difference like teach yourself what you need to know who cares let them do them you you do you and i get their frustration to some degree because you know they're paying vast amounts of money for it um yeah the the education system for the games industry is kind of in a bad place right now from the traditional point of view yeah and i think like my my i have three kids and they love games and they like like tinkering around with stuff and they use things like scratch.io you know mm. it's visual programming for them even things like playing in minecraft and being able to down Unreal or Unity for free and all the tutorials in there, it just seems like there there are so many paths that someone can take to start into the industry that it it, it is weird to me that the, the education side of that, it just seems so disconnected from how games are being made. Um, but yeah, and, and as someone that has been, you know, 
helping people in art station. Like, I think that's, it's awesome that there are those mentors, mentorship problems, um, mentorship. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It just left me. You're able to mentor people online through, like you said, YouTube, Discord, and all these other ways instead of just, hey, go to college and chances are you probably don't, you spend all this money and there's no way you're going to get a job because of this program. So that seems like it'd be pretty frustrating. So, so Alex, do you have a game from your past that really had like an impact on you, like a specific video game that's like, this is the one that I'll always go back to or you hold it on a pedestal, even if it's, even if it hasn't aged that well, right? Um... I suppose there's like there's two or three just I've had games affect me in different ways um you know growing up like the most iconic game which I've always had vivid memories of and I think this is nostalgia I was the on the PlayStation 1 um Abe's Odyssey and Abe's Exodus um I you know I remember on Abe's Odyssey I was too young I was born in 1994 I'd be watching my older siblings play Abe's Odyssey and like I just remember all the, you know as a kid I hear all the funny noises and the characters and it's quite a dark game as well yeah and then when exodus rolled around like i was old enough to sort of kind of play myself and yeah with, around them guys so there's yeah that was a very nostalgic moment for me but i think the game that really stood will always stick with me is the metal gear solid franchise um i although kojima is an absolute madman and you know he tells some of the craziest stories i really like i i spent a lot of time reading a lot of like you know uh, philosophy and all this kind of stuff and it's the, the, the subject matter which kojima gets to is very deep although i find it quite i also find it quite entertaining the way the community responds to it because people kind of see the surface level stuff of like metal gear solid 2 and they're like oh this is ridiculous and cartoonish and stupid and kojima's a hack and i'm like yeah the surface level stuff is a bit is a bit weird but like when you get into the, the sub narratives that he's telling it really it, yeah it really resonated with me and I love I love the cinematic side of stuff. I I although I play a lot of games which don't have cinema and story to them, you know, I play like Escape to Tarkov or like uh, stuff like this. It's them games are the ones which I want to make the ones which stick with people because that's what I've thought about recently. Like you have games which will they're a fad almost. You know, for, are we going to be talking about Fortnite in twenty years? Um, are we going to be talking about uh, PUBG in twenty years? Um, no, I don't think so. I'll be talking about, I mean, Metal Gear Solid now is 20 years old. I'll talk about that game for another 20 years. Like, it stuck with me. And stuff like Halo, we're going to be talking about that. They could have finished Halo at 3. We'd still be talking right. about it to, to this day. Like, there's games which will resonate with people, and I think that's because of great storytelling along with great art. Games which are like, you know, these fad games, I'm kind of like, I'm not really that interested in. Um, you want to... Kind of, and it sounds like a bit you know, mushy, but you, know, you want to leave a leg- you want a game to leave a legacy. You want you want it to have an impact on people. Most recently, Last of Us will have done that. God of War has done that. Horizon. These are the games which people remember for years to come, and they're not just going to pass to you know, to, to the sands of time. And do you think? Because I've been thinking about that a lot, also, because it seems like a lot of the industry likes to chase that trend. That hey, we need to have a BR mode. So at the expense of this game that we're making, we also need to tack on this BR mode just to kind of chase this. And I think because really it seems like that's like a triple A developer problem because a lot of the indie devs are like, well, we can't do that. We can't support that many people. So let's just execute on our vision. We'll make these awesome little titles and we'll just let those people go run and play around in that big money because unfortunately it is big money, right? And that's why it's 
instead of it's 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 making a product and not a game in in my eyes it's mm-hmm. like chase this and and you can kind of see that that happened with the moba genre um unfortunately blizzard just kind of let that thing get away and run with them and now even they had yeah. to play catch up years later and now it's happening with auto chess auto chess got super popular as a mod also then everyone seemed to start jumping on hey we've got to make an auto chess and then you know br happened somewhere in between there and unfortunately it just seems like like just like, and the games that you mentioned, it's a vision that they had and a vision that they executed on. And Sony's been doing really well at that. Um, just because they, they're like, nope, this is what we're going to do. I don't think Last of Us needs a BR mode, you know, because I don't yeah. even know how that would work in that universe. But yeah, hopefully it's, hopefully it's something that people are just, you know, we could chase the money or we can make things like you said that have a legacy. Like, um, and, and I don't even know if Final Fantasy is a good example of this because Final Fantasy VI is that game for me that'll always just, you know, my perfect game, right? Despite, like, yeah. I know it's not perfect, but to me, when I played it, it was a perfect game for me. And just, you know, to have that legacy instead of, all right, we chased the fad and it failed, so shut down a studio and now move on to the next thing, which is unfortunate. Yeah. I, th- I think also there is ways to tackle it. So, for example, I mean... This is where I, I had a bit of an egg on face moment. I remember when Fortnite announced the BR. I was a big fan of Fortnite before the BR. I loved the sort of world they built. I loved the art style, the gameplay. It just didn't take off. It just wasn't as popular as it could have been. And when he announced Fortnite, I was like, ah, it will bomb. PUBG's too big. No one's going to want to play this. This is not going to work. And now, like, Fortnite is, you know, the biggest thing since sliced bread. Um, I think the trick is games have to take an idea and innovate on it and make it a little bit different and have their own twist. Apex Legends did a great job with this. Um, you know, they managed to stay somewhat relevant. Like, I mean, although it's, it's nowhere near as hot as it was when it first launched, it's still got a pretty solid uh, fan base and user base. Um, I think Call of Duty actually nailed this pretty well. They came out with, I mean, I played the Modern Warfare campaign. I loved it. It was a fantastic campaign. They put the effort in. Um had a really good multiplayer, and although I don't, I think they, the multiplayer may have fallen to the side a little bit, so they could focus on Warzone. And I have my own concern, you know, issues with the size of that game now. I think it's over two hundred gig, which is absolutely absurd. Um, however, they were able to sort of like, okay, we have these three components, and we'll put the the necessary time into each. Um, like you said, though, I think they're only able to do that because they're just so big, and it's Call of Duty throwing money at it. Um, because the campaign was great, the multiplayer was great, and Warzone's, you know, it had a fresh twist on things. Um, but it, it is almost like they are constantly chasing, people are chasing, there's a lot of people chasing. And Death Stranding was a, a, you know, a great testament to this. I didn't like Death Stranding, it's not my type of game. Even though I'm a Kojima fanboy, it just wasn't my type of game. But they went, you know, they had a vision, they did their thing. And I can respect that because we need gameplay diversity in the industry. Not every game needs to be a first-person shooter or like a battle royale um, or a looter shooter. You know, hey, we've got this game. No one's done it before. It's just this completely niche thing. And it's like Marmite. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. I was like, okay, I was one of the people that hated it, but I'm glad it's here because it's like, it's something different. It's a it's a different type of game and it caters to a different audience. And that's the only thing with the, the AAA seen over the past 10 years is it's been very samey um and that's why i'm glad then you get things like horizon zero dawn and go to walk along as well where it's just like okay 
story you think multiplayer is the only thing we can do and story games are out like guess what <laughs> they're, they're just as big as anything else i mean god of war really hammered that point home like it blew up big time and again that's i'm, I'm happy about that i'm glad i want diversity in the game in the games industry um because sometimes you're not in the mood to just shoot things sometimes you want to build right. things sometimes you want to be told an excellent story um so although i do think it's a concern the whole that whole you know chasing uh games and fads i think there's enough people walking their own path and have their own visions to offset that i think it's just an, it's a natural evil with it i say natural evil it's a natural entity within the games industry so alex as an environment artist you get to play all these amazing games that we just talked about do you just like walk around these games and be like hey i could make that or hey we can do this or you know what would our take on this be because um, honestly, like, I don't know as much, I don't know what an environment artist does other than in my mind, it says you build the environment that you play in, right? Can you, can you extrapolate on what you do, um, on a day to day basis? So to the, so to the first part of that with the gameplay stuff, I don't play that many games, um, just because I'm busy. I, you know, I, I have, this isn't a good thing. This is a bad thing. And I'm trying to fix it. I struggle to switch off. I'm like, if I play games, I'm like, I could be working, I could be doing uh, personal work, I could be doing whatever. So I don't play games a great deal. I have carved out, like, my friends have helped with this. You know, uh, Halo 3 came out on PC, and I was like, we're like, okay, every lunch, we're going to play one mission on Halo 3. And it's like, that's what we're going to do. And it was really good. Like, it was really healthy for me just to be like, okay, I'm going to just enjoy this. Like, I'm not going to worry about the micromanager of my time and what I'm spending my time on. I'm just going to enjoy this game. And I'm currently doing that Horizon Zero Dawn. That's come out on PC. Um, I've just like carving out time to like dedicate to playing games. Um, but in terms of what my day to day is, um, <clears throat> it is I'm quite a, quite a generalist. I suppose is the best way to describe it. Like you know, environment art is a it's a very broad term. I mean, I've had um, I've done over sixty episodes of my podcast, and every environment artist who comes on, their job is slightly different. It's almost it's it's as descriptive as someone saying I'm a 3D artist. Like there's so many sub-levels to that that, you know, it's almost non-descriptive. Um, so my main areas is, is like uh, world building, uh, level art, you know, building the compositions, building the spaces. Um, and I also do material art. So all the surfaces need materials. Um, I, I specialize in creating them. But I also dabble in other areas. I, I, you know, I create the props and the assets sometimes. I create, we use something called trim sheets. Uh, to create like multiple assets out of one texture, use some little trim sheets, which is you know a really common technique. I do little bits of lighting. Like, I'm quite general, um, I, and I intentionally was that I do that on purpose because my first job at Serious Game Studio, we were working on a new project every single week. It was like we only offered a certain amount of time to each each uh, company we work with, so I was constantly on new things, and I, and I really loved that. And the same with like uh, working in iGaming with Inspired and Life Five your projects are only like three months long. Um, so yeah, you know, I was constantly on the next thing. So I, with my own career, I've always tried to stay quite general because if I was just doing like level art all day, every day for two years, I'd be bored brainless. Like I need, I need to do different things to keep myself occupied. I like to be learning. I like to be dabbling in different areas. Um, but you have people who focus on, you know, just making foliage and you have people who focus on just lighting um people who just focus on making materials like it you'll speak to anybody and they'll tell you a different story and then also within the studios the pipelines vary so 
um, someone like, uh, I don't know, uh, The Last of Us, the way they, or like any of the Naughty Dog, the, Amer- the big American studios, they make their materials all with ZBrush, this hand scoop stuff. Uh, another studio will do everything using simulations and using software like Houdini or Blender. And then, you know, another studio is like, okay, we only use designer, substance designer. So even within them categories of like, uh, you know, of environment art, there's then different pipelines that different studios specialize in. So it's a very granular, like, I don't want to call it segmented, but yeah, it's very hard to say this is what environment artists do because it just varies so much. Well, and it also sounds like maybe that's why the educational system just can't keep up with it because it's yeah. like, well, what do you teach? Like if you exactly. go into construction, it's like, this is how you build a house. This is the two by fours you use. But if you go into game design, it's like, I don't know, take this calculator and make a game on this calculator. Yeah. And you've also got like, think of it like this, an education, your typical higher education, three years. This is assuming that at the end of every three years, the university like updates their curriculum, which they don't like curriculums can be anywhere to like eight years old. But in three years, a whole new pipeline has been introduced and gone. Like it's only a couple of years ago, substance design that really blew up. It was with, you know, like the Naughty Dog people when they launched their like first use of it, they really blew up. And already we're at a point where we're like, okay, substance design is not as dominant as it was like two years ago. You you know, Zebra stuck around the whole time as a very viable um, option. You have uh, mega scans, which are like photo scan assets. Um, so the industry moves so fast that it's nearly impossible to, for traditional education systems to keep up. And also them systems are built and taught by people who are most part not in industry or have not been in industry for a long time because everyone who knows these pipelines are in the industry working. They're not teaching. So that's the other side. There's people who you know retired like 15 years ago and they can teach principles and they can try and keep up with it. But are they up to date on the, you know, did software you need to know to get into the industry in 2020? Not really, not the ones I've spoken to. And I've done, before COVID hit, I did like five or six university talks. And for the most part, some of them were like, you know, there's a, there's a ray of light and that they, there's a positive, positive messages being put out. For the most part, I was like, Jesus, you guys are behind, man. Like, you need to keep up. How can you be teaching these people this? So as, as an artist, like, do you have a favorite thing that you enjoy making? Do you enjoy the foliage? Do you enjoy messing with the lighting? Like, what's your favorite thing? Like, <laughs> I can sit down and crank this project out and it won't even feel like work. Um, so definitely not foliage. I explicitly do not do foliage. I avoid it at all costs. I hate it. Um, it's difficult. Like, I I lean away now from big, like making every single asset in an environment because environments take so long to make. Like, that's an eight-month undertaking. Um, there's two things I like doing. I like doing material art, which is all procedural and a lot of procedural tech, simply because it uses a different part of your brain. Like you're almost feel like a programmer sometimes. And I can sort of wrap that project up in a weekend. And I sort of, I'm not locked down to something. Like I, I'm very, I have the attention span of a goldfish. So I'm like, I'll be interested for like a day. And then by the end of that day, now it feels like a chore. So I don't really want to work on it. I want to work on the next thing. So materials are one thing I like doing. So it's actually, so, it's quite funny when I speak to people like, oh, you're a materials artist. Cause on my portfolio, I have so many materials. So I'm like, no, I'm an environment artist. I just have a lot of materials because that's what I do in my spare time a lot. Um, the other thing I'm doing a lot of at the moment is taking like mega scans libraries, which are all photo scans, make environments album and, um, do lighting studies. I'll, you know, 
tool up my lighting ability, creating compositions and art pieces. I find that very useful as well because I, like I said, I don't want to make a whole environment. I don't want to have to tech like texture every single asset and you know, model every single asset and do high polys and low polys and all of these kind of things because it just takes so much time. Like each one of them can take like a couple of weeks. And then it's like, okay, we need like, I need to make 50 assets for this scene. Okay. Say that's a hundred, that, that's like a hundred weeks straight away there. Yeah. And then like, oh, I actually put the scene together and then I've got to light it. It's like, it's just a lot to do. So I like quick turnarounds um, where I can sort of explore an idea and be finished with that idea very, very quickly. So that's why I, I tend to stick to materials and lighting. Yeah. And is that one of the reasons why the industry is using so many um, contractors now? Because it's, there's a lot of contract studios that are specialized in these one specific thing. So it's just easier to give them that work. And so that studios can focus on, you know, main core gameplay. Um, it's quite a, a broad topic. So it depends on the size of the studio. Like, I mean, okay, let's take someone like Ubisoft, for example, they have, um, like over 10 studios across the planet, across the world. And they're working on multiple projects. What well, it's, they could probably they're they hire a lot of full time people um, simply because they can like they they have the leeway to be able to go okay we're finished with this project we're going to move you on to this next one and it's always this next project to work on so your skills are never wasted um, on studios where they have like one key focus at a time what it tends to be is they have like a core team of full time staff the guys working out the pipelines working out how we're going to do things they spend like pre production working that out and then once it hit production it's like right now we need just we need manpower. Like we don't need somebody to tell us reinvent the wheel for us. We just need the manpower to execute the plan that we've set in place. So that's when you reach out to contractors. Um, you get on. You know, you have, you have two types of contractors. You have your outsource studios, and then just contract artists. And you know, contract artists are there for like say uh, six to eighteen months, and you just there to crank you know crank out the work, do the work, do the work. Right, the game's shipped now. We need to go back to that skeleton crew again to work out the next project. And then you're all, you know, you finish your contracts, you move on to new things. Um, anyway, that's just the nature of the industry just at the moment where most studios do not have three or four projects going at a time. They have one project, they wrap up the project and then move on. Um, studios, are, what I would say though, is studios are also cluing in a little bit and getting this worked out a little bit better where they're, so as the, the first project's wrapping up, the next one's already in development. You slowly transition people across into it. Um, to keep the, you know, so you don't have to like lose everybody, then bring everyone back on board. But you could go like studio to studio and you'll get a completely different answer on how it's run. Cause then you've also got, you know, a smaller studio will probably actually have full time people because they'd expect their people to do multiple things. People like me, it's like, okay, you're doing all the materials first. Okay. Now you need to focus on level art. Okay. Now you need to focus on lighting. I'm there for the whole process because it's just they don't have the the resources to employ a specialized person per role. So you got that aspect too. Yeah. And also, Alex, I kind of wanted to pick your brain on this whole um, quarantine situation because Counterplay Games, you guys have been working remotely from the beginning. Do you see that mm-hmm. as a strength? Does that does that help like company culture? Like, f- is that a stronger bond? Is it a weaker bond because you don't see everyone all the time and it's all digital communication? Like, how does that affect the culture of, of Counterplay Games? So... Counterplay were all remote before um, before COVID, probably worth mentioning. And it's funny, actually, because when I joined, I was like, oh, God, this is going to be a nightmare onboarding with a remote studio. This is going to be horrible. And it turned out, like, it's, it's shocking. I've worked in multiple studios. 
it was the smoothest onboarding process. I started on the Monday and I was up and running by the by the start of the day Wednesday, which isn't heard of. Like most onboardings, I'm out of action for the first week and a half. Yeah. Um. So that was surprising. Um. As for culture, so I I worked at Decagon before Counterplay, and that was also remote, and I hung out every day in Discord with my colleagues, um, and it helps the the. The culture it helps us get to know people um and feel like you, you know your friends because i i treat every colleague i work with as a friend i just the way my mind's wired like from the rugby days you work harder for your friends so starting a counterplay i knew a lot of people there anyway um I had a lot of friends there enrico uh, i knew tim i knew Kurt, um so there was that aspect to it and also there's this bit, actually it's quite daunting for us because a lot of them artists as well, other guys I looked up to, like Enrico one of the, and Anna, two of the you know, strongest material artists in industry, people I looked up to for a long time. Tim was the first, one of the first guys I spoke to when I was getting into the industry, like asking for advice, and now he's my art director. Um, so that was kind of daunting. So I was kind of like keeping a low profile for a little bit. Um, but it is weird. it is odd, the online thing, the... It is odd, but I mean, I I've been like dragging people into Discord from that from the company, just like, hey, let's just talk in Discord, let's hang out, and it's been really, really beneficial. Like, you know, you just you you build a relationship, a genuine relationship with the people. Um, but remote work, I really hope more studios clue into it. It opens the doors so much. Like, you've got so much talent available to you, where before you have to worry about visas and remote um, relocating people. You can just go and head on the talent you want um, if you work remote, which has been really, really good. You know, Counterplay managed to assemble a really strong team. Um, and then there's also this weird thing where, like, it kind of opens the door to work as well. You know, I'm based, so I'm based in um, the UK. I live in Coventry. I can't, I'm, I'm not in a position to relocate. Well, in that case, there's only like three, four studios in my general vicinity, which was like available to me none of which I particularly wanted to work at at the time. So that's when I was out. That's why I was at Decagon um, and then our station and our counterplay remote work just opens the door. It just means, Oh, actually I can work for these American companies or these you know, Swedish companies or whoever it might be. And it's not an issue. And it's a norm. Like the more studios accept this, the more talent is going to be available to them. So for me, it's a good thing. Like if not much can come from COVID, but hopefully this is one of the things for the games industry that will come from it and it's here to stay. Hopefully, fingers crossed here in Touchwood. Yeah, and I can imagine the uh the cost savings for, you know, having, you know, because a lot of the games industry, they, you know, have studios in these big cities that you know, the cost of living is super high, the cost of renting um a studio space is super high. So being able to just spread out and not have that cost, I mean, it seems like that would be super beneficial to a lot of companies to just save money in order to actually hire other people to to work on those games. So, yeah, it is, and also to the artists, like there's some hard look. It's no secret that the games industry at the entry level does not pay great. Um, so then you're like, okay, not great salaries, and then you're asking artists to like relocate to these to the city centers to the, of these expensive cities, and suddenly now that you know they're barely scraping by if it's a case of okay we open a remote work fine you have the same salary so let's just say this you have the same salary let's like not even talk about the, the studio's cost saving you have the same salary but you get to live on a cheaper part of the countries in cheaper locations out of the city center and still do your job it's like great like i can get by i can get by on that then you've got like you said 
companies will save a lot of money, so they potentially their salaries get better. Um, because that's one of the biggest issues with the games industry right now is entry level salaries are abysmal for the amount of work that needs to go in to get there. It just doesn't reflect in that, and that's one you know that's a challenge that the industry as a whole needs to you know tackle. But I think they are taking steps to tackle that. Yeah, I hope so because usually it's like, hey, we're going to bank on you wanting to be in the industry more than getting paid so that you can get your yeah. foot in, right? And it's you know it's taking advantage of that passion and that that desire. So as someone that works from home, Alex, like this this idea sounds super. Like I don't know if I'd be able to do it. I have enough distractions when I'm working anyway between like looking at Twitter and checking all this stuff. Like, but all right, now I'm home with all the distractions here. Like, how do you manage that? Is that this is the time where I'm in the office? This is the time where I'm out of the office? Or is it just like, hey, when I feel like I need to get down and start working on this, I will. If not, you know, because as an artist, um, I imagine it's a lot. It's a lot of like. It's a lot like that. I'm probably an outlier in this um, because I've spoke, people have spoke to me in the past about it, and I'm like, shit, I need to like figure this out a little bit. So. I'm a bit of a workaholic. I work for both our station and counterplay at the same time. So that's like two jobs. Plus I do the podcast. Plus I do with the you know, personal art. I'm pretty much like, okay, alarm goes off at like six in the morning, go to the gym. Now the gyms are back open and then I'm back at my desk and I'm at my desk until like, uh, probably 9 PM, half 9 PM. Now during that, them times, you know, um, I'm quite strict and you know, I get away from my desk. So I've got like, I walk the dogs at set times to force me to just, I've got to get away from my desk and do something. Um, I'll go for walks during the day. Um, I'm one of my people, I'll be at my desk for that amount of time. I'm not necessarily working consistently for that amount of time. There'll be times when I'm talking to people on Discord or talking to people in Slack. Because um, you have different types of people. There's, there's some artists I know, uh, good friends actually, who are like, they can't sit at the desk for 16 hours. But when they're at the desk for like that eight hours, they're really efficient uh, with their time so you have different people who are working different ways at first it's a really hard adjustment period i'm a social person i love speaking to people yeah as as you all know know, the podcast i just want to speak to people i love being around people um so that adjustment period of like okay i'm at home now all the time was very very odd um but it all all i basically said was okay a lot of my friends are like an hour and a half away at the end of the city I'll just make a conscious effort. Like every other week, I'll just go go stop at their place and see them. And I've just got to be very strict to myself to be like, I need to go see them and just get away from the computer and see my friends. I can't do that in the workplace anymore. So I'll just do it that way. Um, but yeah, apart from that, it's, just, it's basically I'm at my computer. Um, I juggle a lot of things. I, I don't really carve out time like, okay, this set seven hours for this and then sit this set seven hours for that. It's like, I just go, I have all these jobs to do today and they just need to be finished by the time I, 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 yeah. I'm doing my day. So it might be like, I do a couple of hours on our station and then I, I tackle a task I need to do. Um, and then I, you know, jump back and just and jump into a meeting quickly and then go back, you know, I'll back and forth between things and just manage my time. As long as I get through my tasks. And I mean, you can see, actually, actually I'll show you on the camera. I've got, <laughs> a stack of notebooks and each notebook is for like a different topic or different things. I just have to do lists everywhere. And I'm like, okay, here's the things I need to do today. I need to make sure they get done. And if they're not done, I'm like, okay, I need to work overtime and make sure they get done because otherwise this, when you're working two jobs, you're doing all the other stuff I'm doing, like it can get on top of you very quickly and you can fall behind very easily. So I'm quite strict to myself on that sense. 
Well, that's awesome. I, I I can imagine. So on top of all that, you're like, hey, I need to start a podcast. So so why start the podcast then? Like, what was what itch does that scratch for you? It's very selfish. It's it's purely self. I mean, I'm really glad that people find a lot of value in it, and I have a lot of people like you know contact me saying how much it's helped them, and I'm I'm thrilled for that. You know, it's very nice to hear. But I started the podcast purely out of selfish means. I just wanted. I like talking about ideas, and um, I was reading a lot on like some some philosophy stuff. You know, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, Carl Jung, and like they were talking about like discussing ideas and like you know speaking his thought and all these kind of this kind of stuff. So I was like, okay, I have a load of ideas. They might be wrong. Um, speaking to other people might help correct me on things. And it did. Like everyone I've spoken to, um, they've, they've, they've shared their perspective on the world, on the game art industry. And it's helped me just round out my ideas. But it was purely selfish. I just wanted to speak to people. I was just like, I've got these people I look up to. You know, my first guest was uh, Ben Wilson. One of you know, very close friend, and he's a girl I've looked up to for years. I was like, I want to speak to him. I just want to pick his brains on some things. Um, and I may as well turn into a podcast. Hey, maybe the stuff I want to know, other people want to know, and it turned out to be so. Um, it was funny because I did, you know, every now and then I get a bit of heat because it's not your traditional podcast. Like, I don't, it's not like I ask questions and then it's like question, answer, question, answer. It's a discussion. And I'll discuss ideas I have. And, you know, it might be the person gives, you know, a, a 10 minute answer and then I'll have like a three, four minute response. And it's like, it's not, I ask a question and I just let the guest speak for, you know, get, say their two cents. It's like, it's a discussion. We're, both, we're having a conversation. It's not an interview, um, which some people have moaned to me about, you know, hey, you talk too much. And I'm like, cool. I did this for selfish reasons. It's my podcast. If you, you, know, if you don't like it, don't listen. And it's like, then I don't, I don't mean that in a, in a, combative way it's just i get a lot more value out of a conversation than i do an interview if i wanted to ask questions i'll just type it to them and yeah type the question and they can they can get back to me that's the way i see it no i i think that's super interesting because you're right like most of the people that start podcasts we do it for selfish reasons because it's you know it's like hey we just want to talk to people and it's a good way to record it but like you were saying like you know if you have ideas that are wrong it's an opportunity for people to correct them like, I think, unfortunately, like, everyone is so scared to share their opinion for fear of being wrong and being ridiculed, right? That we all just kind of keep it in. So we don't share those. So like you said, like, hey, if you're willing to put yourself out there and say, hey, if I'm wrong, correct me, I think we could use a lot more of that. Because now, if you put a wrong opinion on Twitter, you just get attacked and, you know, people hate you and they shun you and they say, hey, this person's garbage. And you lose that nuanced conversation. So it sounds like... yeah you're being able to have those conversations and actually like learn and grow from, from doing that. Yeah. There's been a couple of times it's been very beneficial. Um, like recently I did one, the, the, I do like a, a side podcast, which is the insert topic where I basically, there's a subject and I bring a group of people on, we discuss it. And one of them we had, we, I did recently was, um, women's in game, women in games. It's a very sensitive subject. Like, and, it's funny because everyone got back to me after and like, dude, it sounded like you guys were walking on glass the whole time you were talking because, you know, it's like you're picking your words very carefully because you say one wrong word and you could potentially upset a lot of people. And I had like, I, I came over like, here's an idea I have. I, the, the, the games industry has for the most part solved uh, the issue of like women in the, in the games industry and uh, the, the diversity and all this sort of stuff. They're in the process of fixing it. And then I was 
not so much corrective as like, okay, this is an issue you're not thinking about. And it's more of a social issue, i.e. the way the men and women work together, which is not unique to the games industry. It's, uh, it's across every workplace. And I was like, huh, didn't think of that. And we discussed that. It's very productive. Or like the most recent one, I had Bash Singh on, who's an art director at Creative Assembly. And we talked about voluntary overtime, uh, which is, you know, we have crunch culture, which is, you know, you need to work to get this project finished. And you have voluntary overtime, which is, you know, I, I want to put extra hours on this for whatever reason. Um, and Baj went into explaining, you know, why this is so very, very, you know, not good. You know, there's, there's elements to it, which is toxic. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, I'm one of them people. I will work voluntary overtime. I was like, okay, explain. Here's why I do it. Here's my point of view. Like, I think it's perfectly fine what I'm doing. Like, explain to me why is that wrong? And he went in and he explained it. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I didn't think of it like that. And you make a valid point. And it's like, okay, I need to think about this a lot more. And it has something that's been on my mind a lot more recently about you know, how I portray myself um, in the community because I am a workaholic and that is not a good thing like that's the sort of i say to people a lot like yeah i work a lot and people are like oh god I, you know i wish i could work as hard as you and i'm like no you don't like this isn't good like this really this is bad for my like family relationships this is bad for you know setting a, a, a standard like it's it's not good like, the mess i had a message from somebody basically beating themselves up that they weren't doing what i was doing like in terms of the amount of work i was doing a lot of personal work i did the podcast I did two jobs and i was and that was a big wake-up call for me because i'm like People are looking to me and thinking these things. I'm like, I'm not setting a standard or a norm. Like, I, you know, I am who I am, and that I have the capacity to work like that. But that shouldn't be expected from anybody, and no one should expect that themselves. You know, we're all individuals at this point. But I was made aware of it. I was like, okay, I need to start thinking about this a little bit more and how I put this message out there. Um, so that's that was one of the big wake up calls, and that came again from the podcast. People just telling me about how they used to be a lot of people who come on are experienced people and then explain to me about like how they used to be like this and this is what happened and now they're not that way so much and i'm like i need to listen to this and hear this and incorporate into my mindsets and help uh you know develop as a person because people are when you get messages of you know young artists or students saying hey how do i work like you or like how do you do so much i don't get it like don't do, don't try and do this. Like it isn't healthy. It isn't good. And that's been a big shift at the moment for me. Yeah. And hopefully it's like you said, you know, you, you have to be willing to listen, to take the advice. Right. And I think that's just something mm. that a lot of people like we're so set in our ways and no one can tell us anything that it's like, yeah, but that's you, that won't happen to me. Right. So yeah, being that's, able what, to... that's actually the exact message. That happens. <laughs> oh, so bad. Oh. But, but it's That's... important to be able to take that advice and be able to, like, we don't, we don't listen enough, I don't think. Like, in our social medias, like, they're not social at all, right? Like, Twitter, Facebook, it's not really social. It's, I'm going to spit out my opinion at you. You're going to listen. And if you're on my side, cool. If you're not on my side then we have to fight to the death. And that's and unfortunately, that's what our social medias are. So there's not a lot of nuanced conversation happening there. And I think that's like that was one of the reasons we wanted to start talking to people on our podcast is just, hey, tell us your story and we'll listen. And you know what? We can learn about different people that work in this industry. And, you know, that that's really what it's about, because like we always say, humans make games. They're not made by algorithms. Well, I'm sure there's some game that's made by like some super AI or something. But people make games and it's hard to make a game. It's not easy. If it was easy, more people would do it. Um, 
And it's just interesting to hear people's stories, how they got started and why they do this, because we're passionate about games. We love playing games. And it's just something that we enjoy doing and we enjoy talking to people that that made that their career. Because, you know, I, th- I think everyone deep down wants, would love to make that their career. But not everyone does it because it's not something that's easy to do. Well, uh, it's the key word where you just say career. Like, it's not a job, it's a career. And I've, I've given a lot of talks over the past year about the fact that this is a career. A job is something you get paid to do because you don't want to do it. And, you know, yeah. you, you do nine to five and you finish. The games industry isn't like that. You have to put so much extra hours in um, and your development, you're upfront just to get in. There's so much extra hours you put in. And then you've got to stay on top of that. Like we've spoken about that the games industry moves so fast. People who want to stay in the industry, you, you, know, you roll with the times. You have to, and that means a lot of extra hours and a lot of extra commitment. And it's kind of like, you have to be all in in that this is a career. And that that can shock people sometimes. A lot of students I've spoken to, I'm like, hey, you know, this is how fast the industry moves and you'll have to stay on top of it if you want to stay in it and you want to make this a long-term goal. And it's not for, that's the, and the thing that's not for everybody. Not everyone wants that lifestyle. And if you don't, you know, kudos to you. Like, you know who you are and you know what you need. But if you're going to be in this, be aware of just what you're getting yourself in for. Right. Well, Alex, I really appreciate the conversation. I appreciate the chat, kind of like you opening up, letting us know like where you started, where you're going um, because it's fun to just, it's fun to talk about people that work in games because it's, it's there's so much variety, right? And that it's mm. anyone. And like we, we always say anyone can make a game. If you have the passion, if you have the desire, you put the work in, there's tons of things online that you can go and you can learn how to make a game. I mean, YouTube is, is a thing that, Hey, if you want to get educated by YouTube on how to make a game, I'm pretty sure you could probably do that right now. There's that much content out there or by listening to podcasts. But Alex, I think we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We really appreciate it. I get, can you tell people where they can find you, um, on the social medias if, in case they want to find you? And your, and I guess I didn't even know you had a second podcast. I mean, do you have more than two podcasts? Are you doing multiples there? Uh, so, uh, so the, the, the insert topic is a tag on to the, the GDD podcast. Okay. Um, uh, we have got something with our session in, in the mix, which we're working on at the moment. Um, yeah, in terms of the socials, like the two main ones, I'm really active on Twitter and ArtStation. So if you search Beddoes Design into Twitter, you'll see me. And if you search Alex Beddoes on ArtStation, you know, I'm on there. Also, if you go on the learning tab, I've given uh, multiple talks on like a lot of the soft skills, getting into the industry, being successful in the industry. Um, so you can find me on there. And I release a lot of free content. I release all the work I do, all my materials. I put for free on my store so to help people learn. So yeah, they're the two best. If you want to get in contact with me or um, just want to find me, they're the two best places to start. Awesome, Alex. Thank you so very much, and everyone listening to the podcast. Um, we'll see you next time. <laughs>